The We're LCC podcast is a monthly show that comes out on the 9th of every month. But if you hit the subscribe or follow button on your podcast app, you'll never need to remember that because the show will automatically be there. So go ahead and hit the subscribe or follow button on your podcast app now. We are LCC, a podcast emanating from the halls of Lower Canada College on Royal Avenue in Montreal. Here's alumni officer Christine Jones. Today we have Luke Dreimer Graham, a graduate from the LCC class of 2021 and the Pre-U class of 2022. We're so happy to have this opportunity to talk with Luke about his efforts to save the orangutans in Indonesia and the harmful effects of palm oil production on wildlife and the environment. Luke Dreimer Graham is the first student from LCC and one of only a handful of students worldwide to earn a perfect score of 45 on 45 on the IB diploma. Right. So, well, Luke, I'd like to welcome you to the We Are LCC podcast. We're very happy to have you. And I'm really looking forward to getting into our conversation about all the important, amazing work that you've been doing. So I'd like to first ask you if you could just, you know, introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about, you know, who you are and where life has taken you so far. Thank you, KJ. I'm very excited to be here, too. It's always fun to, to talk about the environment and to talk about these issues. So yeah, my, my name is Luke. I've been at LCC, or I just graduated pre-U a few weeks ago. And before that, I've been at LCC since kindergarten. So I had a long, uh, long ties to this school, and they've really allowed me to explore all my environmental passions. So I'm excited to talk to you guys about that today. And yeah, so I guess we're going to be talking about the work that I do in forest and orangutan conservation in rural Indonesia, so in Kalimantan, which is on the island of Borneo. So why don't we just start by you giving us a brief overview of, you know, I know you mentioned where, but a little bit more in depth of where you work and what it is that you actually do. Right. So since the summer of grade eight, I actually, my mother actually pulled me out of school early. We flew to Indonesia. We've been working with the International Animal Rescue's Indonesian branch every summer since, and they specialize in, you know, international animal rescue, obviously is about animals. And in Indonesia, they specialize in orangutan conservation. And orangutans are very, very special creatures. They share 97% of our DNA. So they're almost like our cousins. I did not know 97%. Oh, yeah. I mean, you could be interacting with one and you might think that they're more like you than one of your actual cousins. But anyway, we've been working with them and I work in youth to youth education. So I have a little speaker series in the town of Ketapang, Indonesia, which is where the organization is based. And I'll take that to local high schools, activist youth groups, and educate them on the plight facing the orangutans and their native habitat. They only live in two places in the entire world, and those are the islands of Borneo and Sumatra. So they're very precious species, and they're critically endangered. And unfortunately, the education system in Indonesia really undervalues, I'd say woefully undervalues, environmental education. So part of my work is to instill in students a real appreciation for how special their homeland is. And it's really about educating them on the principal threat facing orangutans, and that is palm oil and its incredibly widespread use around the world. 
And so can you describe to us what palm oil is? And is it is it the production of the palm oil that is problematic? Or what actually happens with the palm oil? And why does it affect them in such harmful ways? Right. So palm oil, it's, it's an edible vegetable oil, and it comes from the fruit and the kernels of the oil palm tree. And they weren't native to, to South Asia, but they were brought over uh, from Africa about a century ago. And now Indonesia and Malaysia account for 85% of the world's supply. And palm oil, I mean, you might not hear, you might not have heard of it because it can often be disguised on nutritional labels and, and such with its name, but it's in practically everything. So it's the most popular oil for consumer goods. It's found in everything. I mean, laundry detergent, makeup, you know, shampoo, food, Kit Kat, all of these things. Well, maybe not Kit Kat, actually. I think, that, I think Nestle is, uh, is taking some steps to eradicate palm oil, but don't quote me on that. But it's in a lot of food, all these snacks. When you open your pantry, when you open your laundry detergent kind of cupboard, half of the things I guarantee you have palm oil in it. So it's in, it's in its incredibly popular oil. It's cheap and Part of the problem for us in the environmental movement, it's actually not harmful to the human body, right? Like a lot of other oils. It's actually quite healthy. It's a vegetable oil. So it's inexpensive. It's very versatile and it's a very high yielding crop. So, I mean, we're facing, you know, food shortages and land shortages. So that is, I suppose, a positive of it. You can get a lot out of a little bit of land. And just, I have a quick question just to go back because you said, you know, it's, I didn't realize it was in things like detergent and makeups and that, so on and so forth. So you said it's often disguised on labels. And so as a consumer, we might look at the label and say, oh, this thing doesn't have palm oil in it because it doesn't actually say the words palm oil, but there's something else. And do you have any examples of what those are or is there just too many? There, there are a lot, but I can give you a pretty, a pretty chilling example. Often it's disguised as, quote unquote, vegetable oil. Oh, and I guess that's legal for them to do, to just call it vegetable oil, essentially because it's a vegetable or coming from a vegetable? It's vegetable oil. Yeah, exactly. So it, that's what makes it a little difficult to determine where it is. But we do know just statistically, it is the most popular oil in consumer products. Okay, okay. And so, yeah, you were starting to then go on about what, I guess, the production was and where it sort of links into being harmful to Indonesia. Right. So Indonesia is the world's largest producer of palm oil. It's 40.6 million tons. I think that was a few years ago. I don't know what the number is now. And together with Malaysia, it accounts for 85% of global supply. And it exports to the rest of the world, to countries like ours, three-fourths, three-quarters of its production. And the problem with palm oil is the way that it's planted. As I said, it's not native to Indonesia, but let's call it the, let's talk about the island of Borneo because that's where I work and that's where it really affects the orangutans. So it's not native to Borneo. So if we're going to be planting these palm trees, then we need to destroy the native forest in which orangutans live. So. What needs to happen is it's peat soil. That's the natural forest. It's very, it's, I don't want to say swampy, but thick soil. It sequesters a lot of carbon. That is not where the palm oil trees grow. So that peat soil needs to be drained. And then obviously the forest needs to be cut down to replant these trees. So you'll actually have vast, vast swaths of just artificial plantations of palm trees. 
And sometimes, I mean, they'll do, you know, it's, it's all in the quest for efficiency. So sometimes the companies will actually set the forest ablaze. Oh my gosh. Like all in one shot, just take it all down. Yeah, exactly. Clear as many hectares of natural forest, of primary forest as possible. Gosh, I can imagine if this was on video, this would be alarming footage to see. You can look, there, there are really powerful images online showing the decline in primary forest coverage on the island. You know, over the past 50 years, it's really, really shocking. And I mean, you, you can really see there, there are pictures of these beautiful, lush, unique, some of the most biodiverse rainforests in the world natural rainforest, so many species that are just unique to the island. And you have pictures of, you know, this, it's like a direct cutoff because you see where the palm oil plantation starts and it's totally raised. Sometimes it's kind of row upon row of trees that palm trees have already been planted, but sometimes it's just the deforested area. And that is encircled by this beautiful forest. Right. And then so what makes it so harmful is that the orangutans have nowhere to live. Like they, they've got nowhere to go. Well, that's it. They're, they're tree-dwelling primates. So they, they spend a lot of their time in the trees and they can't survive in, on palm oil plantations. So that's a big issue. You'll often have palm oil companies paying local villagers. Remember, this is very primitive rural areas. So, you know, not a lot of economic opportunity. So palm oil companies will sometimes pay, this is not legal, you know, villagers to shoot the mother orangutans. And then those villagers might want to, I don't know, keep the baby as a pet because they're so cute. They're adorable as babies. Um, well, I'd argue they're adorable for their whole lives. But as little babies, they're very, very cute before they really start to kind of bulk up and develop. But they'll keep them as kind of pets without realizing that... In a few years, that orangutan is going to become big and wild. And that leads to a lot of kind of villager confrontations. And I will, and I, sh- I should note, part of what is making this such a threat to orangutans, if, you know, the mothers are being killed, orangutans, we talk about them being like humans. They spend seven to nine years clinging to their mother's backs, learning everything they need, learning how to be an orangutan, learning, you know, which kind of plants they shouldn't be eating, how to build a nest in the trees, how to forage for food, all these things. And they're being deprived of that, you know, the minute that they become orphaned. Oh, God, it's like, it's actually heartbreaking. It is. And then so how does the organization, your international animal rescue work specifically to save the orangutans? Well, I think we should start with the most kind of obvious direct. It's physically working with orangutans to help them. So a lot, again, you have a lot of high incidence of orphaned orangutans. And if an orangutan is orphaned when he's one years old, that orangutan is not going to have a chance to survive in the wild because he doesn't know how to be an orangutan. It's like launching your kindergartner into the world and expecting him to, you know, get a job. Yeah, figure it all out. Hop on the metro, get yourself downtown. Exactly, that's right. One of the things that IAR, that's the abbreviation, does is they rescue and rehabilitate orphaned orangutans. So they actually put them in something called baby school, 
where they teach them how to be an orangutan. And this can be, uh, a, depends, you know, how much quote unquote training the orangutan needs, but this can be like a seven year long process where they are teaching the orangutan how to be an orangutan, how to interact with other orangutans, how to forage food, build nests, and they do it. It's, it's actually very interesting. I like to think of it, the analogy I use, it's like the progression through school. So they actually have different kind of man on this at their rehabilitation center, man-made islands of kind of secondary forest. So simulated habitats for the orangutans to learn in and you graduate. And, you know, we would think of graduation as getting a diploma, demonstrating competence in reading, writing, math. For them, graduating is demonstrating the ability to survive without the help of humans. So on each island, it's less and less human contact. So to graduate from, let's say, one island to another, maybe the difference is, you know, instead of being fed out of the palm of their hand, out of the palm of, you know, the caretaker's hand, they're searching for food that's been scattered on the ground. And then after that, on the next island, maybe they've reached a point where they can, you know, forage for food themselves without it having to be scattered. So that is the process. And then eventually those orangutans will be rehabilitated and they'll be translocated into safer parts of the wild, like protected areas. The International Animal Rescue actually invests in its own large swaths of protected forests. And that's actually really good because that takes away the opportunity of palm oil companies to lease that land for production. So IAR is the custodian of that land, the trustee of that land, so they get to preserve it. And after these orangutans are released back into the wild, they're monitored, but really they're living back in the wild. And and yeah, so that's that's one big thing the organization does. And then you'll have some orangutans that are not necessarily in need of teaching, right? They know how to be an orangutan. Maybe they were caught in a snare trap. Or, um, you know, there, there's a really powerful image of an adult orangutan clinging to a single branch of a tree. And that only one standing surrounding this barren wasteland almost. So in a, in a case like that, that orangutan would be translocated to a safer area where it can live its life peacefully as, as an orangutan should. So, I mean... What would your message then be to people who would say, oh, you know, palm oil doesn't really affect us. Like, why, why should we really care about this issue? Yeah, well, I think, you know, in, I think people in the environmental movement often get bogged down in jargon, in complex explanation. So if you don't care about the orangutans, I can spend a long time trying to make the case why you should. But I'll go kind of in line with the laws of human nature and say it's about your self-interest. So the environmental risks of the destruction of the forest run far greater than just threatening a bunch of beautiful diversity, even if it's so special and unique. I care about that. Some people may not. Like it goes far beyond what happens to the animals. Exactly. So it might be difficult for us to think that something happening you know, here in Canada, something happening literally across the world in some remote jungle is going to affect our lives personally. But Borneo's rainforests provide an ecological service that goes far beyond, you know, habitat, you know, for animals. The Bornean rainforest is one of the world's largest and most important storages of carbon. 
So they help sequester our carbon emissions, which obviously, I'm sure everyone knows, are only growing. And again, since the palm trees that are planted for palm oil don't grow in the natural peat soil, when that soil is drained and the land is burned and dry, that releases all these greenhouse gases into the atmosphere because it has to, the peat is really the, the rich mineral rich what stores all these gases. So when we drain it, where do you think those go? Those go in the atmosphere and we all share the same planet, right? So the people in Indonesia are hurt just as much as, as we are. So it's really not just animals or local communities that are harmed by the environmental mismanagement. The entire world is affected. So I think that's why if you want to make the self-interested case, that's why people should care. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, I mean, there's obviously a ripple effect to everything. So then if people ask, you know, well, what can we do about it? Would you say that a solution would just be to boycott palm oil? I think it, it's difficult because, you know, when we, when we talk about conservation, I think many people's first instinct is to say, okay, here's a problem, right? We've identified a problem. It's the, de- the deforestation in Borneo. And by the way, just to give you a statistic, because I, 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 I can't miss the opportunity to give out this statistic. The deforestation rate is 1.3 million hectares per year. Oh, my God. Okay, so that, that should, as it should, that provokes a little shock. But, I mean, that's difficult to equate to land. So here's a little visual. 1.3 million hectares is 2.3 million football fields of forest that is destroyed every single year. 2.3 million football fields. Yes. I like, literally have shivers. It's actually, it's very upsetting. We're on a path to having almost no natural forest cover. We continue like this. But let's get back to the boycotting issue. So... Again, we see, we see a problem. Palm oil is causing all these problems. So the first instinct is, okay, ban it, get rid of it, stop using it, let's boycott it. But the problem with that is there are a lot of unintended consequences that could actually make the problem worse. So if you'll let me, I'll, I want to give you an example of where IAR, in partnership with my family, is employing a more multidimensional, a more holistic approach to conservation. So we talked about the main goal of the International Animal Rescue. When it rescues these orangutans, the goal is for them to be re-released back into the wild. So there's a protected area deep in the jungle, and it's called the Bukit Baka Bukit Raya National Park, okay? And this is used as a release site for rehabilitated orangutans or translocated orangutans. This is a safe space for them where they can live safely free from the threat of the destruction of their habitat or, you know, rough confrontations with villagers. So on the border of this park, there are a number of very rural, very primitive villages. And the residents, there's, again, not a lot of economic opportunity. So the residents rely on illegal logging, so cutting down trees illegally to make a living and, you know, provide health care and education for their kids. And by the way, this work, it's, it's backbreaking work. It's not pleasant work. And this is really so, at this point in these villages, that's the only opportunity family has to make a living. So it's stories like that that we need to think about when we talk about banning and boycotting. So we need to put ourselves in the shoes of the people and the communities that actually do benefit from environmentally destructive industries. I want to say just imagine if you were an impoverished villager, but it's, it's not possible for us to imagine what poor is in Canada is privileged in, in these villages. 
So you're an impoverished parent. You're living in a primitive village. No plumbing, heating, healthcare, no education. And then all of a sudden you have someone like us coming in, a Western organization or even a non-Western organization, somebody who does not necessarily understand their struggles coming in and saying, the only way you know how to feed your family is destroying the planet, right? This is where the environmental movement becomes so complicated because you can't just expect someone to upend their life with no sustainable alternative for survival. So this is where IAR, I I told you about the direct solutions, how they help orangutans directly. But this is where we start thinking about kind of three-dimensional solutions, right? So we ask these villagers, why are you doing this? Why are you engaging in this backbreaking work? And the number one answer was they wanted to educate their children. And the school system in these villages, I mean, it's practically non-existent. You know, after primary school, it's it's really the stereotype of, you know, students having to wade through rivers to get to schools where the teacher might not even show up. So we asked them about that. And this is where I want to kind of broaden the solutions in all environmental issues, and especially this one, but really this applies to all environmental issues, to include community development and education. So in partnership with my family, IAR established a scholarship fund for these local village children in communities bordering the release site. So the goal is to remove the kids from the grueling cycle of manual labor and environmental destruction and ultimately equip them with the tools they need to provide sustainable futures for their families and communities. Every year, we take a group of students out of their villages into a larger city, and they can learn in high-quality schools They're going to learn English, math, technology. These are things that they tragically don't have access to in their communities. So we house them in a dormitory and they learn very useful skills such as organic farming, not just farming, organic farming and cooking and all these things. And they learn how to coexist with the environment and use it in ways that are not harmful. So if they were back in their villages, I mean, they'd have to wade through rivers to get to schools that are underfunded and that are really not actually going to provide them with the tools they need. And the the link that we have to make is when communities live in poverty, it's the forests and the orangutans that get decimated. How does educating children save orangutans? That's the link. When we're, we're developing communities, we're providing them alternatives. That is an indirect solution to the environmental problem. And by the way, the scholarships that we offer, they extend far beyond the kids themselves. So part of the contract is the families who are benefiting from this have to stop cutting down trees and destroying orangutan habitats. And then when their kids finish schooling, the kids, they go back into their communities and use these newfound skills to, you know, help develop new ways for people to coexist with nature and provide for themselves. And this is where we're starting to see that full circle, right? So the original goal was just to protect the national park from harmful activity. But we recognized that we had to empower communities with sustainable alternatives to their livelihoods, right? The, it's the, that, that's the circle. So when we talk about holistic conservation in the process of helping to save a critically endangered species like the orangutan and its habitat, we were able to develop overlooked communities and provide future generations with the education they deserve. And that, that is the circle. Right. And there's what makes the difference. So 
if let's say we, you know, these issues, they're often environmental issues seem very big and overwhelming for individual people to look at and say, I want to do something, but I don't know what, I don't know how. So what would you tell people? Like, how can one person make a difference in this issue? Right. Well, I, I, I can tell you a little bit about what I, what I'm personally doing in, in these communities. And then, you know, and, and what, what I do really by, you know, teaching kids about the environment and, you know, I, English too, but it, it, I really am, we're focusing on getting them to appreciate the, the oasis because it, it, it's, it's unique. It's one of a kind. There's nothing else like it in the world that they get to call home. That's an extraordinary honor, but of course, it's also an extraordinary responsibility. So I can tell you what, what I kind of do. I want to I want to talk a little bit more about the scholarship kids because, you know, the, the, the logistical elements of the program, that is really the organization and my family. But where I come in is I'm like them in many ways, right? I'm the same age. And youth to youth education really is the most powerful way to transmit a message. When somebody hears something coming from somebody like them, obviously I would not equate our experiences, but somebody with whom they can at least draw a, you know, a, a connecting line. Right. I mean, you're probably as close as you'll get compared to other people that would be involved. It's far, far more powerful than, you know, a kind of a European, you know, conservationist coming in and telling them, you know, all these things. So there, I, you know, so there are times, you know, when it was very difficult for the kids. So to, right, just imagine these kids came from very rural communities and they were, transported to town to go to school and they weren't with their parents. They didn't have the support of their family. They had to adjust to making new friends in a new environment. I mean, it's, it's, it's a lot of what LCC tries to help, you know, expand access from just, you know, not just such privileged communities. It's the same difficulties, you know, in assimilating into a very privileged environment. So times were difficult for the kids. They were being bullied on account of their economic backgrounds they were having trouble, you know, keeping up with the more rigorous coursework because they were not well, they were inadequately prepared through no fault of their own. So to help them through those hard times, I would, you know, send them videos and try to encourage them. And I tried to speak in their native tongue, Indonesian, which is a phonetic language. You know, I've been taking Indonesian lessons and trying to learn the language. Not easy, but I can have a speech translated and give it to them in their mother tongue phonetically. It's easy to say, speak. And what I learned really was these kids, they're hungry for knowledge, right? I mean, and considering their backgrounds, especially what they want to do with their lives, they want, to, they want lives of service. They want to help their communities. They want to protect them. They want to be police officers, teachers, nurses. They want to help people. And it's very, and it's very inspiring. So really all they needed was some encouragement, was to have someone in their corner telling them that, you know, they're amazing. They inspire me. They inspire, you know, they inspire my friends, teachers, everybody I've spoken to about them. So I, I assembled these videos and we would basically say that to them. And the results really, it led to a, you know, an increase in their grades and they were able to adjust better to school and make new friends. And our first batch actually just graduated. Oh, nice. And many of them, or some of them have gotten scholarships to universities and, you know, on different Indonesian islands, on like Java, which is the most popular island. I mean, this is so remarkable. And, you know, it wouldn't necessarily have been expected from kids from that background. And that just speaks to the power of education, right? You know, 
you can empower somebody and the desire is there. I mean, we chose the scholarship program, chose kids for whom the desire was there, but a good education can unlock so much. And again, it's not just a good education for the purposes of human rights or economic empowerment or good education. It's a good education for the purpose of fulfilling our environmental organization's mission, right? So yeah, that's, I mean, and then also, I guess, another another thing that I do personally in, this is not with the scholarship children, this is with, in Ketapan, where again, the organization is based, how I kind of have this speaker series. So the scholarship program, it's only one example of community empowerment being intertwined with conservation. So in the larger town where the center is located, I work with youth groups and, you know, high school kids to spread awareness on the plight of the orangutans and their native habitat. So I host weekly meetings, you know, in partnership with IAR. This is what I do personally. So, you know, people are asking, how did this, you know, at the time I was, what, 13 year old come to Indonesia and start like, you know, trying to make a difference. This is how I, I car, I had to carve out my own niche. I was there. This was a project my parents were involved in, but I had to, I knew I had to do something right. I, I was originally just kind of shadowing my parents around and I became passionate about the issue. So I wanted to do my part. And I obviously don't have the talent yet going to college. Maybe I'll get it there to do, you know, budgeting or logistics or government negotiation, all of that. But I do have the power to transmit a message as a youth to other youth. Absolutely. And don't sell yourself short. You are a remarkable person. So So again, so sometimes it's difficult for people to understand that it's possible to individually make a difference, even on the smallest of scales. I'm not saying that everybody needs to book their flight to to rural Indonesia and, you know, learn and then, you know, and communicate with, you know, village kids. But what I've learned over the last few years is the most effective solutions come from the ground up. So you don't have to have necessarily institutional power to effectuate change. We don't all need to be the next Greta Thunberg. She gets a lot of fanfare, but there are a lot of people just individually doing their part. And it's the aggregation of those people that makes true change. And I'm always trying to tell the kids that I work with that they can create change simply by educating their friends and families on what they know. This will multiply and magnify throughout a community. And then eventually you have a community of empowered voters, empowered consumers who are willing to make choices based on knowledge that they have. So I go into a lot of local schools in Indonesia and I always get asked, it's great that we're learning about these issues, but what can we do about them? And I always answer by saying that, first of all, you're here, you're listening, you're expanding your knowledge. So that's a great first step right? Being open to new ideas and doing your best to stay informed. And from there, yes, you can make changes to your personal lifestyle. But really, the most important thing is that you pass on the message to others, right? And if, there, if there's really one thing that like, I want to transmit to you know, everybody who I talk to about these issues is that education is power. Education is power for yourself, is power for you know, saving the orangutan, saving the forest. That's how you create change. Right. Honestly, you're doing such fantastic work. You should be very proud of yourself. It's been so great to sit and chat and learn more about this. Before we sign off, is there any last couple of things you'd like to share with us? I think we, we look at environmental issues today and even like across political spectrums, it's very, I don't want to say dogmatic, right? Because it's often divisive, but I think that the realm of environmental conservation 
and the example that I gave, you know, with the scholarship fund and with the speaker series and how you have an organization expanding their mission beyond just solving the issue. I think that that's something that, you know, we should remember when we're looking to face the myriad of problems that, you know, that we're unfortunately confronted with as a society. So that's not to say I like to be maybe more inclusive in my messaging than some components of the environmental movement. You know, it, it's not necessarily about banning this, like ban oil, ban palm oil, stop doing this. But even if we can, if we have a different philosophy, let's say that, you know, technology can solve these problems that, you know, working towards developing a, a sustainable method of producing palm oil is the solution instead of banning it. I don't want those voices to be excluded from the environmental movement because that really works against our cause, right? That breeds a lot of resentment that works against the issues we're trying to solve. So I want I want it to be inclusive of all rational ideas that are based in, you know, a form of logic, reason, and science. Even people who are trying to push those solutions that maybe sometimes are excluded from the environmental movement, even if those people are, you know, are kind of empowered and understand the issues, that is a step in the right direction. And that's when that's when I say education is power, the idea that somebody who is pushing a solution that you might disagree with, that person is still well-meaning, trying to find a way to help the environment and drive us towards a sustainable future, that person should be included in in the movement. So that, that that's, I guess, that's maybe that's a view of mine, you know, where a lot of environmental activists might disagree with, but that that that's just my perspective. I really think it's a good one. And I mean, I'd like to thank you for taking the time to be with us, sharing your story, sharing these important messages for our community. And uh, we can't wait to see where this leads you and what you do next. Yes, of course. Thank you so much. And thank you, LCC, because I definitely think LCC breeds in somebody like me the, the, the ability to kind of start something to create change or the ability to become open-minded and interested in different cultures different views. LCC is is creating, a, I guess, future leaders. That, that's really the way to put it, future leaders. You're so right. And you're there at the forefront. So thanks for being with us. Thanks for listening to We Are LCC. For more, go to wearelcc.ca slash podcast. And remember to hit subscribe or follow on your podcast app so you never miss an episode. Produced and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company. I'm Matt Kundal, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent, almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com.